Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, your closest link on how technologies are healing healthcare around the globe. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and I'm going to call this episode a special edition podcast, since my guest today is not a medical doctor or a digital health entrepreneur, but an accomplished journalist and teacher with a very successful family. Her name is Esther Wojcicki. Her husband Stanley is a Stanford University professor of physics and together they have three daughters. Susan is the CEO of YouTube, Janet a Fulbright winning anthropologist, epidemiologist and an assistant professor of pediatrics and Anne is the co-founder of 23andMe. Esther holds an honorary doctorate from Palo Alto University and Rhode Island School of Design, and among many other things, she is the founder of the Moonshots in Education movement. I briefly spoke to Esther during the Webit Festival in Sofia, Bulgaria. The discussion you will hear resolves around how we learn, changes in the way we interact due to technology, the role of parents in education, and of course, 23andMe, a little bit of politics and how the U.S. healthcare system affects society. For the warm-up, obviously my first question is, have you done the DNA sequencing and how often do you search YouTube? Well, of course I did the DNA testing. I was one of the first people that did the DNA testing. My daughter wanted to know what DNA she got from me. So right away, I was like, if I wasn't number one, I was number two. And my husband also did it early as well. It was pretty exciting. It's already 12 years since uh, 23andMe was founded. That's right, 12 years. A lot of people, it's helped a lot of people find their relatives and find, um, you know, their children. Uh, it's been amazing. And then, of course, it helps you find whether you have a predisposition to a disease. For me, it's a particularly was great because it turns out that I have predisposition to diabetes, but I would never guess because I'm not fat. And I don't eat a lot of, well, I used to eat a lot of cake, but now I don't eat a lot of cake because I know that it's bad for me. Education is one thing healthcare is dealing a lot with, so empowerment of patients. Goal of 23andMe is to empower the patient so that you know a lot about yourself and you can make intelligent decisions and choices for yourself. You can prevent disease, not treat it after you get it. You can prevent getting it. Where do you see the role of uh, empowerment and technology that enables us to obtain information in order to, to take care of, of our health? Well, uh, data is really important. And um, you need to be able to understand data and understand your predisposition for a variety of diseases. A lot of websites give you data. Some don't give you the data. As a matter of fact, they want to charge you for the data. I mean, in 23andMe, one of the things that is great about it is that there's so many people on it. There's millions of people. So they can use the data to help us all make decisions and to help us understand something about like 
do, do these drugs work for this type of person? You know, they're doing a, a correlation between your DNA and drugs. Why do drugs work for some people and why don't they work for other people? And so that's one of the things they're doing research in. So what about YouTube? How, how often do you search for, for educational content? I search for educational content all the time, and so do my students. It turns out YouTube is the number one educational platform in the world. They have one billion education searches per day. Um, when I was still studying journalism uh, 10 years ago, I remembered that um, teachers uh, were already really surprised when they started to realize how differently younger generations consume media and where they get their information from, especially in the journalistic studies. They were appalled by the fact that uh, students admitted that they don't read newspapers anymore because they get their uh, uh, information from the newsfeed on Facebook? Well, I think my students, um, they get their information from newspapers, the, from the main newspapers, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post um, or the local paper, San Jose Mercury News. They see things on Facebook, but they're very suspicious now. We're all suspicious because they always want to make sure that they know the source and they want to know who who's quoted in that article. So, well, at least in my program, students have developed a special technique for how to detect fake news. You're teaching journalism, right? Yes. Uh, so you started doing journalism already in high school, and then you went to teaching uh, quite early. How come? Well, so I've, I first was a journalist. And then the reason that I switched from being a journalist to being a teacher of journalism was because first there was a lot of discrimination against women. I could not get into the newsroom. They only wanted me to write for what was called the women's pages. So they wanted me to write news about children, you know, and how to take care of children and recipes and housework. And I wanted to write news. So I did for a while, but then after I had my own children, it was just easier for me to just have the same schedule they did in school. And so I decided I would teach journalism. You've got three daughters, and uh, they're all um, very successful. So one is the CEO of YouTube, the other one is the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe, and the third one has a PhD in uh, anthropology and epidemiology and is working as a pediatrician. Yeah. And then your husband is, uh, um, he's in physics, right? Professor of physics at Stanford. Yes. So, of course, one must ask oneself, how does the family dinner look like? What, what do you talk about? <laughs> well, we're kind of normal, but we talk a lot about um, what's going on in the world. We talk a lot about kids, you know, how they are doing today. We talk about um, YouTube, of course. And we talk about 23andMe. And, you know, and we also talk about diet and health and things like that. But we talk mainly about, you know, what the kids are doing. They all get to share what they did that day. And sometimes it's really silly, but it's interesting and fun for us. The children come without instructions Yet um, the the role of parents in the education and upbringing is uh, very important. So here's what all parents need to know. And somehow it wasn't explained earlier. 
and I don't know why. All parents, you are their child's first teacher. You are a teacher. And parents somehow don't understand that. They think that all the education is the responsibility of the school. Not true. The first five years is when the majority of brain development takes place. And you are teaching your kids everything. They model after you. You don't have to tell them. They watch you. And then if you are anxious and yelling all the time, then they are anxious also. So you need to think about this and realize that your behavior is what they copy. And so you need to make sure that's what you would like your children to do. I would say that it would be great, I'm thinking about this, to have a handbook for parents Unlike the first five years, there's a lot of books out there that talk about the first five years of life, but unfortunately, they all concentrate on the physical part. It's like, you know, by six months, you should be sitting up. By one year, you should be talking a little bit. By one and a half, you should be doing this. There's more to it than that. There's a lot more. So maybe we need some books out there helping parents because they all want the best for their kid. Every single parent. Although you know, with the book market, there's a lot of books out there talking about how different countries, different parents, different models are raising successful children, which can be very confusing for parents because there's just too many theories out there. In fact, the most important thing is to have, to realize that We're all the same. Every single country, every single parent always wants the best for their child. And the main thing that that parent needs to realize is that child is going to copy you without even thinking about it. They model after you. So whatever you are doing is what they're going to copy. One thing I found interesting is when in one of the interviews you mentioned that the more you do for your children, the less they will do for themselves. That is absolutely true. The more you do for them, the less empowered they are. So if you're always making the bed for them, they will never learn to make their own bed. If you're always cooking for them, they're never going to learn to cook. The more you do for them, the less empowered they are, and they feel like they can't do anything. They need you all the time. That's one of the main problems. You want your kids to be independent, to be able to do things without you. My goal in my classroom is I teach my students how to do, you know, write for a newspaper, how to lay out a newspaper, how to work together in teams. And then my goal is to basically make myself obsolete. You know, I'm still there. I still help them, but they know how to do everything. They don't need me to be there holding their hand all the time. And that's what parents should try to do. You want to help them. You don't want to desert them. You know, you just, just want to, but you want to help them learn to be independent and do things themselves. Sometimes it takes a lot longer. You know, it's easier for you to make the bed. It's easier for you to get them dressed. It's, e it's asked easier and faster. But are they learning when they, when you do that? What are they learning? You know, it's easier for you to do the dishes yourself. Maybe they should learn how to do the dishes. 
since your uh, one of your daughters is an anthropologist and working as a pediatrician, um, how much has that helped you or how much have you learned in terms of children, in terms of how to understand kids? Since on the one hand, you're working with children every day and every time when you have some uh, social sciences background, it gives you a different perspective or a different ways of approaching how you do um, your job or how you think about every aspect of their life. Well, I think, you know, her anthropology background has helped me understand different cultures. And um, she spent a lot of time in Africa. And, I mean, that's part of where I get my ideas, that, you know, we're all the same. And we are all the same, um, no matter what we language we speak and what the color of our skin is. Everybody wants the best for their kid. It That, that child represents the future. And so there's certain commonalities. The number one commonality is people learn by doing. They don't learn by watching, and they don't learn by listening. And our whole education system is based on watching. Watch the teacher says, watch me do this. And then the teacher says, um, you know, that after you watch me do it, sometimes they ask you to try to do it yourself. But if they don't do that, you know, if it's just theoretical and you're just reading about it in a book, you're not going to learn it. How about creativity? How do you learn to be creative? How did you learn after you decided that you're going to ask every difficult question? Because if I remember correctly, your mother was not keen on asking questions. How did I learn? Well, I learned because, um, actually I was forced to learn. It was a tragedy in my life when I was 10. My younger brother died because we didn't ask enough questions and we didn't insist. We didn't trust ourselves. And so ever since that happened, I said, I'm always going to ask those questions no matter what. And so you don't want to wait around for a tragedy in your family. You want to ask those questions. You don't have to be rude about it. You can be polite, but you need to ask the questions and you need to demand an answer. And that makes a big difference. I read about uh, the tragedy. Uh, if I may, just uh, for the understanding of the listeners, uh, your brother was 18 months old yes. and he swallowed too many aspirin pills yeah. and you got rejected at four hospitals because at that time the U.S. healthcare system still allowed for the patients without proof of payment to be rejected. That's right. We were rejected because of lack of proof of payment, but before that even happened, my mother called the doctor, and the doctor is the one that made the mistake, and he was probably just too busy, and he said he didn't listen. And so he said, just put him to bed and see how he was in a few hours. Well, you don't put a child to bed after they've swallowed a poison. You go to the hospital right away and pump their stomach. So, I mean, the American system today is better, but they still, in some states, reject people for lack of payment, which is really a tragedy. I don't know how often you're in the healthcare system, but be, um, with both two dollars being, being heavily invested in the space, how do you see um, where the biggest uh, issues are that um, really shouldn't exist today? Well, 
you know, in the United States, we have one of the lowest um, maternal um, health care. And so we have more women dying in childbirth than ever. And you think of America as, you know, modern and has everything, but it doesn't. And why are these women dying? Well, they don't have the proper health care. They don't have preventative health care. And it's a tragedy. You know, we're in the land of plenty and we aren't taking care of everybody. So our health care system is based on who can pay. And um, that's totally unfair. I mean, that should be one of the rights, just like education is a right. You should have the right to be educated. You should have the right to access good health care. And I mean, all of Europe has healthcare systems that are far superior to anything that is in the United States. Yeah, I mean, in terms of maternity leaves, there's two weeks off in the U.S. I think it's four months uh, in Switzerland, in Slovenia, it's nine months. So the difference in what you can offer uh, your child in its early stages of development is uh, very different. So yesterday on this panel, there was I was with the woman who was from Slovenia. Serbia. Um, uh, Jelena Djokovic, yes. Yeah, Jelena. Mm-hmm. She was very, she was amazing. And she said, all the problems in society today are the result of not taking care of those children from zero to five. Because that is the age when they need the most care. And when their brain development, I think it's by three years old, they develop 85% of their brain capacity. So why aren't we focusing on that? Why aren't we doing that? And in the United States, we don't do that. I mean, I lived in France when Anne was born. And, you know, every week, there was a nurse that came to my house to make sure everything was okay. And, you know, it was free, even though I was an American citizen. And as she came, this woman came for the first like six months or eight months to make sure that I knew what I was doing. We don't have that in the United States. I mean, it's, it is really, we're compounding our own problems by doing that. Here's something that most people don't know. We have almost 50% of American children are living in poverty. And the United Nations tried to point that out to Trump just recently, and he denied it. As many other things. Right. But it's, you know, these kids, they don't have a place to live. And it's in the southern states. It's actually everywhere. They, we have homeless people. You know, I've been here in Sofia for a few days. I haven't seen a single homeless person. I mean, not one. The difference is quite striking. The U.S. has the appeal of the f- that you can be whatever you want to be and you can succeed, but at the same time, you can go from uh, a very successful person to a homeless person uh, very quickly as well, and nobody is going to take care of that. That's kind of like the security that social systems do offer here. Well, one of the main reasons people go from success to homelessness is because they get sick and then they pay all their money to try to get well. And then they end up with no no money, no resources, and then they end up homeless. So the medical system is one of the major problems. Plenty of problems. Direct-to-consumer advertising, preventing 
patients with preconditions to, to get adequate medical care. I often say that um, in that sense, um, the U.S. could learn a lot uh, from Europe, especially when it comes to the payments of drugs and how that's structured. The prices and how insurance coverage is much more regulated um, in order to ensure solidarity. So you as a patient are not um, in a worse position because of some genetic thing that's, uh, yeah, that's not your fault. That's right. No, I th it's it's a real problem. You know, we have a drug drug epidemic in the United States, you know, heroin, and it's not being treated properly. And so we have more young people are dying from drug overdoses than ever before. And a lot of these people are depressed. And the reason they're depressed again is because they can't find jobs. They don't have the skills that are necessary. They weren't trained properly, or maybe they lost everything because of a health issue. You know, there's, there's a lot of issues that Americans need to address now. Unfortunately, our leadership is creating more problems for us. All those children that were separated from their parents at the border in Mexico, 2,500 children, it's going to cost us a lot of money to try to reunite these families and then house them and take care of them. Not even to mention the traumas that Not come to out mention of the, the trauma. Those kids are all traumatized. Many of them were told, I'm just taking your child for a bath. And then they never came back. I mean, what kind of country does things like that? It's, it's a shame. We should be ashamed that we have done anything. And the people who support Trump, I don't know who they are. I don't know anybody that supports that kind of behavior, no matter what their religion. You know, you don't separate families. You've been in the education space um, for a very long time by now. And uh, how children are developing and what's ex ex expected from school compared to the home environment is uh, changing radically. So in that sense, um, um, you get asked often, what did you do to encourage um your daughters to be curious, your daughters to be um, independent? Well, so my theory is that, and what I did is, I l let them be independent. So you cannot learn to be independent by reading a book about it. And you can't learn to be independent by watching somebody else do it. You actually have to do it yourself. So I gave my children very early on a lot of skills to be independent. And um, they were making decisions when they were very small. And then they continued making decisions. The other thing is that we weren't afraid of failure. So if they didn't do it right the first time, they just redid it. And um, so that's been my philosophy all along, and that's the philosophy I have in my classroom. So if you don't write the article right the first time, just rewrite it and rewrite it until you get it right. And so I don't penalize people for doing it poorly the first time. Their grade is determined by what they finally do, not the process of doing it. 
How do you see the changes in the way people uh, interact between themselves due to new technologies? In one of the talks, you mentioned how technology is influencing the way education is delivered. So um, the, the 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 teacher is not only telling the students um, the content, but there's new ways that you can interact and engage with uh, students. So first of all, I just want to start with when there's very small children, zero to five. Um, parents basically make it easier for themselves. When the child is screaming or having a bad day or fighting with a brother or sister, they give them a iPad or give them a, a phone. And so then the child, of course, is quiet and just plays with the phone or the iPad. This is really bad. And why is it bad? It's bad because children learn how to interact. They learn social skills when they're small. And if you're always blocking that learning by giving them a, an electronic device, then when are they supposed to learn it? So that's one thing that is, I would say, they need to, parents need to stop doing that. Let them fight it out. That's what, how they're learning how to interact. And then in school, um, the teachers need to understand that you do not lecture to the kids anymore because they get most of that information on YouTube or they get it online somehow. So what you can do is lecture just a little bit and then ask them to go online and find that information and then share it with each other. In the sharing is where the learning takes place because when you're active, then you're learning. When you're sitting there passively, almost falling asleep, by the way, you don't learn. You know, it's, and even if they tell you to take notes, people just, they're de daydreaming about what they're going to do tonight or on the weekend, and they're really not present. And so you can get rid of that by having them do a lot of the research themselves and then talk about it with each other in class. That's why I say that the lecture can still continue. It just has to be shorter and it has to be more to the point. 20, even 10 years ago, as a student, you really had no choice. You had to listen to the teacher because there was no other way. If you didn't listen to the teacher or if you didn't read a book, well, you weren't going to learn it. But today, we all have those electronic devices. We all have YouTube. We all have Google. We have all the ways to learn things online. And that's how we do it. It's so easy to do it that way. Um, it's learning, it's personalized learning, it's what you want to know. So um, teachers need to know they will never be replaced. We always need the teacher, but their role in the classroom has to change. It was interesting that you mentioned that you learn what you want to learn. So to which extent can you Uh, encourage students to also pay attention to the things that they don't find interesting in the first place with all this uh, new media and the uh, different ways of communication and interaction the attention span it has changed quite a lot so a lot many people are learning things they don't want to learn the main reason they don't want to learn is they don't see how it's relevant to anything how is it relevant to their life to their work to their family so they just only reason they learn it is because they're memorizing it because they're afraid that they'll get a bad grade. That's the main reason. So 
the reason people learn is if it's relevant. So the stuff they're looking for online, it's relevant to their life or they wouldn't be looking for it. So it's the goal and responsibility of the teacher to make sure people understand why they have to learn some things that they don't want to learn. I mean, the why is really important. And I mean, maybe you don't want to learn all those chemical tables in chemistry, which you have to memorize. But if you know why you have to learn them, then you're motivated and then you won't forget it. So when you learn things that you don't care about, that you're just memorizing for the test, after two weeks, you only remember 32%. So why'd you do it in the first place? It's ridiculous. You need to understand the why. And that's the responsibility of the teacher to explain it. A lot of new technologies are enabling us to remember and experience things in very new, uh, various new ways. Video is just one thing. Then there's VR, AR heavily coming in, the magical um, education. From your perspective, how fastly is the educational system able to ad- adapt and Uh, adopt these new technologies in order to improve the education process? Well, I wish they would adopt it more quickly. I would say that they're really slow. And the reason that they're slow is because teachers in general are afraid to change. And the reason they're afraid to change is because that old system that they had probably worked. And so the question they ask is, why should I try a new system? The old one seemed to work pretty well. Why, why change? And so we have to remind them that maybe the old system was teaching skills that we no longer need and that we need to change. I think the other reason is because if you just think about the role of schools in society, the role of schools is to perpetuate tradition as to teach the traditions that were there for your parents and your grandparents. And so when you're trying to change an institution whose goal is to pe- perpetuate information in society, then it's hard to change it. So you have to explain to the teachers, too, why they need to change. They also need to know why. Sometimes teachers just don't know why. They're just forced into changing, and that doesn't work either. This was the 15th episode of Faces of Digital Health. If you wish to get a glimpse into some other healthcare systems around the world and how they adopt innovation and the digital health, browse through some other episodes as well. You can learn about Sweden and the UK in episode 6 of Medicine Today on Digital Health, as this podcast was named before. India is in episode 7 and 8 of Medicine Today on Digital Health, Germany in episodes 10 and 11, there's Russia in episode 15, Israel episode 17, Dubai episode 21, Japan episode 23, and from this year's episodes of Faces of Digital Health, Africa is covered in episode 3, this is one of my favorite discussions, and then there's China in episode 12 of Faces of Digital Health. That's it for today. Stay tuned and if you like the podcast, please take a minute to leave a review or rating in iTunes or with wherever you get your podcasts.